Now, I know that the passage that I just read for you, Revelation 8, 1 to 9, may seem like a strange sermon text because it contains the seventh seal and then the first two trumpets and therefore seems to be a piece of one section plus a piece of another section. And that is correct. That is exactly what it is. Our text today is a piece of one section plus a piece of another section. It's a transitional section as we transition from the seven seals section of the book of Revelation into the seven trumpets section of the book. And my sermon today is admittedly a bit of a mishmash, a a junk drawer, if you will, of observations that don't belong exactly to the seventh seal, nor exactly to the first couple of trumpets, nor honestly, in in some sense, to any one particular text in Revelation, but rather Revelation as a whole. And there's quite a bit of material to be covered today. So this is one of those gird up the loins of your mind sermons. All right. I apologize in advance if it's hard to follow. I've tried to organize it as well as I can. And I do think that this morning's material has the potential to be a really helpful piece of the puzzle in understanding Revelation as a whole, if I'm able to communicate what I have prepared clearly, and if you are able to understand it, which is why I'm going to attempt to do it in spite of the foreseeable challenges in doing so. All right? So with that in mind, what I aim to do this morning is to give you what we might call a progressive review of the structure of the book of Revelation. We will review what we've learned about the structure of the book of Revelation. But we will review in a way that helps us make progress in understanding the structure of the book of Revelation. Hence what I'm calling a progressive review. And then we will see how these general principles for understanding the book as a whole are operative in our text today as we transition from the seven seals narrative into the seven trumpets narrative. So that's what we're trying to do, okay? So gird up the loins of your mind, and I hope that by the end of the sermon today, you will see the overall structure of the book of Revelation more clearly, and that you will see the relationship between the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the transition we make from one section of narrative to the other more clearly. Alright, so that's what we're trying to do. Let's begin then, with all of this in mind, let's begin with a review of the structure of the book of Revelation. For some of you, this will be the second time you heard it, but if you were absent the Sunday that I preached my introductory message to the book of Revelation, this will be new to you. In the introductory message to the series, I presented you with four distinct ways of understanding the book of Revelation. There is the preterist view, the futurist view, the historicist view, and the idealist view. And you can go back and listen on our website to that first sermon for a fuller explanation of each of these if you're interested. For the sake of our purposes this morning, I'm not going to review all of those in depth. But in that introductory sermon, I showed you that there is a fifth, and from my perspective and the perspective of many others, a better way than those four, which actually builds on the strength of each of those aforementioned positions. 
and mitigates against the weakness, weaknesses of each of those four positions. The fifth approach, which I told you up front, is the perspective from which I am teaching through the book of Revelation, is what has been called the cyclical view. Well, the root word of the word cyclical is obviously cycle, right? And so this view sees Revelation as covering the same events over and over again from various perspectives. The way that if you watch a sporting event on TV, there may be various replays of the same moment in the game from different angles. And so you're seeing it in different ways. You're seeing it at full speed. You're seeing it in slow motion. You're seeing it from overhead. You're seeing it from the side, so on and so forth. According to the cyclical view, Jesus speaks to the seven churches of his day in Revelation 2 and 3. Each one of these a real historical church and yet also representative of a particular pitfall that the church in each generation must guard against. And then following that section from chapters 4 and onward, Jesus reveals to his people the course that history will take culminating in final judgment and final salvation and deliverance for His people for their instruction, for their encouragement, for their warning, and for their edification. But Jesus doesn't reveal it only once, as if chapter 4 runs straight to chapter 22 in linear, historical, progressive, chronological order. But rather, Jesus reveals it multiple times in repeated cycles from various camera angles, so to speak. So here is the basic structure of the book of Revelation according to the cyclical view. If you're a note taker, here's where you get out your pen and write this down, okay? Chapter 1 sets the scene and introduces the main characters in the narrative. There is John the Apostle, exiled on the island of Patmos, and there is Jesus who appears to him and dictates to him seven letters to send to churches in his day. And then, after those letters, he shows John a series of visions. So chapters 2 and 3 comprise those letters from Jesus to real first century historical churches who are also exemplary for the church in every generation in terms of pitfalls to guard against and ideals to pursue. Chapters 4 and 5 give us a vision of the heavenly throne room and of Jesus who is worthy to open the scroll that is introduced to us in those chapters, which is the scroll of human history between His ascension and His second coming, as we saw in our study of chapter 5. Now, especially important for our purposes today, chapters 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 5, gives us the first cycle through human history, ending with the seventh seal and peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. According to the cyclical view, that's the first cycle through human history. So, human history ends with the return of Christ and judgment and salvation in chapter 8 and verse 5, according to the cyclical view. Also especially to note, especially important to note for our purposes today, 
is that chapter 8 and verse 6 begins a new cycle, which ends with the end of chapter 11. So this is the second cycle through history between the first coming and second coming of Christ. And this second cycle ends with the seventh trumpet and flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Chapter 11 and verse 19. Then chapters 12 through 14 give us the third cycle through human history. This time, the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail does not occur at the end of this third cycle. But we do read of Jesus coming on the clouds and harvesting the earth and treading the winepress of God's wrath, which is the biblical language used for the end of all things and corresponds therefore thematically to the cataclysmic finale of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail, which were used in the first two cycles. Chapters 15 and 16 give us the fourth cycle through human history, ending with the seventh bowl, and back to the common refrain, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, and great hailstones. Chapters 17 through 19 give us the fifth cycle through human history. Again, not ending with the common refrain of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail, but with Jesus returning and again treading the winepress of God's wrath, as was the case at the end of the third cycle, at the end of chapter 14. Then chapters 20 through 22 give us the sixth cycle. And end, again, not with the common refrain of flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, etc. But with Jesus returning, defeating his enemies, rendering the judgments of God upon them. And this time, the book of Revelation adds a wonderful emphasis on the subsequent blessedness of God's people following on the heels of Jesus' victory over his enemies. So from chapter 4 onward, it doesn't go, chapter 4 is the first century, so to speak, and then chapter 22 is Jesus' return, and we just run from point A to point B in a chronological fashion. Rather, according to the cyclical view, we see all of human history played out in chapters 6 through 8, and then all of human history played out again from chapters 8 through 11, and then all of human history played out again from chapters 12 to 14. And then all of human history played out again in 15 and 16. And then again from 17 to 19. And then again from 20 to 22. In further um, textual support of, of this, or sorry, intextual support of this cyclical view, you can see that there are common indicators at the end of each cycle. There is always either... Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Or, there is Jesus returning and rendering recompense upon his enemies. Three of the cycles end with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. And three end with Jesus returning and rendering recompense on his enemies. Furthermore, in support of the idea that Revelation is cyclical, 
right in the middle of the book, in Revelation chapter 12, that chapter begins with a dragon about to devour a male child at the time of his birth. One who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, we don't have to be rocket scientists to understand that symbolism, right? Who is represented there? Jesus. Jesus, right? So, what historical event does that refer to? Something in the middle of remaining world history between the writing of Revelation and the return of Christ? No, of course not. What chap the beginning of chapter 12 refers to is actually the birth of Christ. Even though it's right in the middle of the book of Revelation. And chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, follows right on the heels, obviously, of the end of chapter 11. Which is the seventh trumpet, at which time the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And then there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail, etc. So in view of this, the birth of Christ happens in the book of Revelation following the end of chapter 11, which shows us the end of all things, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So we see a clear end and a clear beginning again. So these are just a couple pieces of evidence. Obviously, I can't exhaustively show you this, but I'm, I'm trying to show you that this cyclical view is not just the convenient invention of theologians who wanted to be innovative and reject other common ways of understanding the book of Revelation, but rather that there are actual exegetical indications. In other words, markers right in the text itself, which guide us toward the idea that the revelation we are receiving is cyclical and repeated, rather than linear and chronological all the way through. So a revelation is more like replays from various camera angles rather than watching the whole game uninterrupted without any replays whatsoever. This cyclical view allows us to see revelation speaking of both the past and the future. Unlike the preterist view, which forces us to see it as speaking of pretty much only the past, or the futurist view, which forces us to see it as pretty much mostly in the future. It allows us, furthermore, to see events earlier in the book as actually happening in time and space after events later in the book, and vice versa, which is self-evidently the case at times anyway. For example, as with the events surrounding Christ's birth happening in history before the Second Coming, but happening in Revelation 12 in a subsequent chapter to Revelation 11. This is a strength over against the historical view, which forces us to read Revelation in an always proceeding in chronological order manner. The cyclical view, cyclical view also allows us the possibility of being appropriately specific with correspondence to world history, unlike the idealist view, which balks at that enterprise altogether. The idealist view says, well, you can't really correspond anything that happens in Revelation with anything specific that really happens in world history. And yet, because the cyclical review, the cyclical view recognizes that some different symbols represent the same thing, 
since it's repeated over and over in different ways with different symbolism. The cyclical view protects us against being overly specific and overly zealous in terms of trying to find great meaning in each and every detail of each and every symbol. Thus, it preserves the strength of the idealist approach in making the book relevant for every generation and yet safeguarding us against the often silly and nonsensical charts and calculations of those who are convinced that Revelation is basically an encoded newspaper from a future time which the previous 20 generations wouldn't have been able to understand anything of until the actual time of the fulfillment. So according to the cyclical approach, in summary, we will see contours of the human history that elapses between Christ's first coming and second coming, specific enough to be helpful and encouraging, and yet broad enough to be meaningful and intelligible to any generation. Not just those with Google or CNN or some other supposed means of connecting the dots, which would have been utterly inaccessible to Christians of previous generations. So this is what I've taught and showed you about the, the structure of the book of Revelation so far. That's review. That was all in the introductory message to this series. Now let me add a progressive development in our understanding of the structure of the book of Revelation. And the progressive development in our understanding of the structure of the book of Revelation is this. These cycles or sections of the book of Revelation are not watertight compartments which have no interaction with one another and no crossover or bleed through between one section and another whatsoever. There is a linear aspect to the book of Revelation in some sense, which results in the fact that the trumpets build on the seals and then the bowls build on both the seals and the trumpets and so on and so forth. In other words, there are times when elements from earlier cycles are referred to in later cycles. And there are notable developments in the progression of Revelation's overall message or macro-narrative as we move from one cycle to the next. And we see an observable progression from one cycle to the next. To try to illustrate this, let me give you one example of this dynamic which has been pointed out by almost all commentators on this book, irrespective of what paradigm of interpretation they use. In Revelation 6 and verse 7, part of the seven seals narrative, death and Hades are given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So in this seals narrative, the fraction that we are given is a fourth. Now in Revelation 8, 7, and following, in the seven trumpets narrative, it is a third of all things which are destroyed. Now, to remind you from your school days, a third is bigger than a fourth. Alright? And in Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 and following, in the seven bulls narrative, it is every living thing in the seas that die, and all the rivers and waters that become blood, and so on and so forth. So, as we read Revelation, we see these repeating cycles, 
And yet we also see progression in the cycles from a fourth to a third to everything. So we may note that there is an intensification as the book of Revelation goes on. Both God's salvation and God's judgment are presented to us symbolically in increasingly intense terms and proportions. Alright? So therefore, what we have in Revelation is not merely the same message over and over conveyed in different angles when viewed in terms of the successive sections which follow one after another. But there is also a macro message of the book of Revelation conveyed by the totality of the book as each subsequent section intensifies. So let me, let me put that in simpler terms. What does repetition do? It enforces a point. Right? It emphasizes a point. So when we see over and over that history plays itself out according to God's sovereign will and that judgment finally comes upon the wicked and that God's people are delivered and blessed, when we see that over and over and over and over and over in the subsequent cycles, it reinforces the point that history is unfolding according to God's sovereign will. What He has determined will come to pass both before Christ's second coming and at Christ's second coming. And that the wicked will be judged and that God's people will be saved and delivered. Time and time again in Revelation, there is thunder and lightning from the throne symbolizing judgment of the wicked. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Chapter 8 and verse 5. Chapter 11 and verse 19. And chapter 16 and verse 21. Time and time again in Revelation, Jesus returns and conquers His enemies. Chapter 6 and verse 15. Chapter 14 and verse 14. Chapter 19 and verse 11. Time and time again, God's people are delivered and saved. Chapter 7 and verse 13. Chapter 11 and verse 15. Chapter 15 and verse 3. Chapter 19 and verse 6. Chapter 21 and verse 1. So this main message is reinforced time and time again by the repetition of the cycles. All saying the same thing over and over in different ways and in different, from different angles. Jesus is coming back to judge the wicked and to rescue His people. You can't miss it as you read through Revelation. It's an unmistakable, repeated theme. And then viewed the other way in terms of the intensification of the macro-narrative. What does intensification do? If you're listening to a song and all of a sudden in the bridge the instruments cut out and there's maybe just a little shaker or something and then another instrument comes back in and another instrument comes back in and the music is building and building and building. What does that do? What does the intensification do? It brings things to a climax. Right? It... it Bring, it builds momentum and brings things to a climax. And what is the climax of the book of Revelation? It intensifies and intensifies and intensifies all the way up to chapters 20 to 22, which give us this last cycle. And it is, it is a most thrilling and exhilarating portrait of God's twin works 
of judgment and salvation. Bringing revelation to both a climax and then a denouement ending, which is the sort of ending in which everything is wrapped up nicely and ends the way that you hope that it would. So there is repetition in terms of the cycles, looking at the same thing from different angles, but there's also this growing intensification which builds towards the glorious climax of the last cycle in chapters 20 to 22. So there is some interplay and interaction between the cycles, even though the cycles themselves are essentially covering the same time period and the same events, the unfolding of history culminating with Christ's salvation and judgment. All right? With this progressive review of Revelation's structure in place, let us look now, lastly, at the way these dynamics are present specifically in our text this morning. So now we're back in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, which is the section I read to you at the beginning. And this is the part that I am most concerned about potentially being unclear. So gird up the lines of your mind afresh. You girded, up, you girded them up in the beginning, but that was 25 minutes ago. So gird them up again. All right? Let me try to explain how the seven trumpets, in one sense, starts an entirely new cycle and repeats the same time period as the seven seals covered, but from another angle. And yet, in another sense, the trumpets build upon and draw upon elements of the seven seals section and contribute to the developing macro narrative of Revelation. First, let me reiterate that the opening of the sixth and seventh seals corresponds with the end times judgment in which Christ returns to judge the wicked and rescue his people. We know this is the case for several reasons, which I mentioned at length last time I was preaching on the book of Revelation a few weeks ago. So I'm just reminding you of them here, again for the sake of time and our purposes this morning. I won't go into detail on each one. You can review the last message if you want a further explanation. But here are a bunch of reasons why we know that the opening of the sixth and the seventh seals corresponds with the end times judgment in which Christ returns to judge the wicked and to rescue his people. First, because of the correspondence of language with Matthew chapter 24, 29 to 31, which describes the return of Christ. We read in Revelation 6, great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You could go back and you could reference Matthew 24, and you could see that it's the same kind of language that's used there to speak about the return of Christ when it's not going to happen secretly, but every eye will see him. Second, because of the thematic correspondence between passages like Psalm 2 and this section of Revelation, where Christ returns and overcomes the kings and rulers of the earth. Psalm 2 is that psalm which tells us that the kings of the earth and the rulers gather themselves together against the Lord and His anointed, 
But what? Are they successful? No. God laughs and says, no, I've set my king in Zion and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will terrify them in his fury. And what we see at the end of Revelation 6 with the opening of the sixth seal is that these kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals gather themselves, or sorry, they, they hid themselves rather, in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb. And so you can clearly see here thematic correspondence as the kings of the earth are terrified of the fury of God's king whom he has set on Zion. It's obvious thematic correspondence. And then there is the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 which says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Who is it at the opening of the sixth seal that sees Christ coming and is wailing? Well, it is kings of the earth and great ones and generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone. So, there you go. It's the same thing that's talked about in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And then fourthly, because of the symbolism of chapter 8 and verse 5, about the lightning and thunder and earthquakes and so on and so forth, which always indicates the end of one cycle of visions concerning the span of time between Christ's first coming and His second coming, and tells us, okay, this cycle is over. This is the judgment from the throne. As Revelation 4, 5 tells us that these things, the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake, come from God's throne. This is God's judgment upon the wicked. This is the thunder and lightning from the throne. This is wrapping up this cycle, and we're about to start a new one. And now let me add one more. Which I think is not so much proof, but corroboration. Which I haven't mentioned yet. Because the judgment, and here's where we're getting a little bit to the exposition of our passage today. Because the judgment, which comes in 8.5, is the fullest possible answer to the prayers of the saints in Revelation 6, 10 and 11. How long till you judge and avenge our blood? Notice that the answer given in Revelation 6.11 to that question, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? The answer given in Revelation 6.11 is, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So when the full and final judgment begins in the sixth seal, we ought to infer then, if this is the full and final judgment, that the number of their fellow servants and brothers now is complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then as Greg Beal, a commentator on the text says, the seventh seal is a continuation of the sixth. Though there was a lengthy interlude in which God's people were sealed in Revelation chapter 7, what has happened is that Christ has appeared at the end of chapter 6, terrifying His enemies, 
But the order was given at the beginning of chapter 7 to the angels to stay their hands until the people of God had been sealed. So now, at the beginning of chapter 8, the people of God have been sealed. What should we expect is now about to happen? The angels who stayed their hands until the people of God had been sealed are now going to unleash the judgment of God upon the earth. So, this judgment described in chapter 8-5, earthquakes, lightning, peals of thunder, is not something different from the day of the wrath of the Lamb, but it's actually just now Christ has appeared, but the order was given to stay their hands until the people of God were sealed. Now they've been sealed, and now it's the day of the wrath of the Lamb, earthquakes, lightning, thunder from the throne. This is what's going on. The seventh seal, as, as Beale correctly says then, is a continuation of the sixth. And as Beale goes on to say, the response then of God to the prayers of the saints described in chapter 8 and verse 5 is to be interpreted as the final judgment, not some trial preliminary to that judgment. So with the final judgment of God upon the wicked at the return of Christ, described at the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, the cycle of visions pertaining to the seven seals ends. And in one sense, the trumpet narrative, the seven trumpets narrative, begins everything all over again. And we're about to again see the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. The seven trumpets were, which are about to blow... The seven trumpets which are about to blow will give us all over again the time period between Christ's first coming and His second coming. And the seven trumpets will culminate again in flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail in chapter 11 and verse 19. At the same time when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Revelation 11, 15. So in one sense, the seven trumpets narrative begins all over again from another angle, which that which the seven seals section has already taught us. However, as I pointed out earlier, the sections or the cycles of Revelation are not watertight compartments which have no interaction with one another and no crossover and no bleed through between one another. So viewed from one perspective, the seven trumpets start all over again and recapitulate the same time period as the seven seals. But viewed from another perspective, there are elements of the seven seals narrative which interact with the seven trumpets narrative. Let me show you what I mean. If we go back to seven, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, what do these verses lead us to expect will happen in judgment? I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. What do these verses lead us to expect will happen in judgment, in this judgment which is about to occur? 
the harming of the earth and the sea and the trees. Right? Now, as we've already established, the universal final judgment occurs in the sixth and seventh seals, culminating in the end times formula of peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This judgment encompasses, quote, everyone, end quote, according to Revelation 6.5. And by implication, then, this is entire harm of earth and trees and sea before everything is remade into the new heavens and the new earth. If this is the end of all things, then it's the full passing away of the world in its present form. So this is the fullest and final answer to the prayers of God's people about the prayers they prayed in Revelation 6, 10, and 11. However, what happens when the trumpets are blown in chapter 8? Here are verses 6 and 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So what happens when the trumpets are blown in chapter 8 then? Harm to the earth and trees and sea. So this corresponds then, thematically, with the idea that at the end of all things there will be harm to the earth and trees and sea. Notice, however, that in chapter 8 and verse 5, earthquakes, lightnings, peals of thunder, etc., if this is the end, then that's full, complete harm to earth and trees and seas and the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth, etc. But that in this new cycle, in the first and second trumpets, what we see is partial one-third, right? And that the blowing of the first and second trumpets do not immediately usher in the end of all things, but rather happen throughout the period between Christ's first coming and His second coming, rather than at the time of Christ's second coming. So remember, like flashbacks in a movie, which might have chronologically happened, much before the scene and yet appear in the movie after the previous scene. So the first couple of trumpets happen chronologically prior to the sixth and seventh seals. So this harm to the earth and trees and sea, one third of them, is not the final judgment. But it is a partial judgment nonetheless. And it is implied then that in some sense, it is in response to the prayers of the saints, which are recorded for us in Revelation 6, 10 and 11, since it corresponds in language to the way that God answers their prayers in the sixth seal, harming the earth and trees and sea. So without negating 
the assertion that God answers the prayers of the saints finally and fully at the end of all things, symbolized by the sixth and seventh seals portraying the return of Christ. Beale observes that the fact that the trumpets provide a partial answer to the prayers of the saints for judgment suggests that God is beginning to answer the saints' prayer for retribution in the middle of history, even as they are praying and before the climactic and fundamental answer of Judgment Day. In other words, let me try to bring this down to a simpler level. God is not doing nothing by way of judgment until the full and final Judgment Day. Rather, He is bringing partial judgment at times and in places and in pockets in here and now. Not everyone gets what they deserve of God's wrath in the here and now. Not to push the symbolic numbers too far, but maybe we could say only one third or so get what they deserve in the here and now. More often than not, in time and space right now, people don't get the wrath that they deserve. According to the symbolism of Revelation, maybe two-thirds don't. They get away with it, so to speak. As we pray for justice, O Lord, how long till You judge and avenge our blood? We should not expect it ultimately and fully to be done in the here and now. Full and final justice awaits the end of all things. But even in the interim, God visits justice partially on this world. Sometimes. And in some ways. In some places. And upon some people. These are warnings and precursors of what is to come. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear. As Jesus said in Luke 13, 4 and 5. Those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were all worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These partial judgments, these one-third harms to the earth and trees and sea, symbolized in the first and second trumpets, may serve as warnings to us that eventually we get to the end and the opening of the sixth and the seventh seals and God pours out this full judgment. These partial judgments may serve as warnings to us who are spared to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And this humility before God is what is signified by the silence in heaven here in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, just prior to God's judgment. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence in the Old Testament prophets is always associated with humility before God, especially with a view toward His justice. We must either silence ourselves before God's judgment or be silenced. We must either humble ourselves before God's judgment or be humiliated. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before her. Men talk and boast and revile and so on and so forth. The kings of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast the cords from us. But God commands silent reverence from these rebels. As we see in our text today, there will come a day when there will be silence in heaven at the impending judgment of God about to fall because there's no one arrogant in heaven. And on that day, the Lord will enforce silence, not in heaven alone, but there will be silence in the earth also on those days. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. So in summary and conclusion, here are two takeaways. Let us bear in mind that the book of Revelation contains multiple cycles which rehash the same time period and the same material concerning God's unfolding of human history, culminating with the return of Christ to judge and save. However, let us note that these cycles are not watertight compartments with no interaction with one another, no crossover or bleed through, but rather that sometimes there is a sense in which Subsequent sections refer back to elements from earlier sections and draw on those to enrich the symbolism and the imagery. This will help us understand the whole book of Revelation better. Second, let us observe as we transition from the seals narrative into the trumpets narrative, how these dynamics are present in our text this morning in this transition. We see when we put it all together that the saints pray for justice and the Lord pours out His justice partially in the here and now according to the symbolism of the first couple trumpets. At this time, harming only one third of the trees and sea and earth prior to the end of all things. But there is a day coming when there will be a cataclysmic judgment symbolized by the thunder and lightning and earthquake and seven sea and so forth in the seventh seal, and to foreshadow when the seventh trumpet is blown. This judgment, by implication, will not be one-third, but it will be full and final, and it will cause the earth in its present form to pass away, harming all the earth and trees and sea, as as it were, and usher in the new heavens and new earth. So let us soberly consider the judgment of God, which is re-emphasized in the repetition of the seven trumpets again after the seven seals. And let us heed the warning that one day it will not be one-third, but everyone. Let us reverently then, reverently keep silent before God, repenting of our sins and pleading with Him to pardon us for Christ's sake before that great and fearful day of the wrath of the Lamb.